Then they stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving not a soul alive or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a spectral character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. And just like some secrets, perhaps some ideas that people have for films they want to make should never be told. Allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide through the world of cinematic H.P. Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I am Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we will be reviewing 1988's The Unnameable, written and directed by Jean-Paul Wallet. But before we get into this so-called unnameable, unidentifiable thing, uh, we have some news to discuss. It's not happy yes. news. And if no. you follow us on, on our Facebook page, you probably know this already. Um, and by the time this episode goes live, it will be old news. But mm. um, it's now made official. Lovecraft Country has been canceled on HBO. And as I said when I posted the article, um, kind of not surprising. I mean, typically if a show is a hit, I mean, sometimes you'll hear even partway through a season, it's been renewed for a second season. Sometimes right. after it's even just like a day or two after it's done, it's like, yay, we're coming back. And then I must admit it was kind of weird that after the, the finale aired, there wasn't really a whole lot of news on what HBO was doing with it. And Misha Green didn't really have much to say. It was kind of like, yeah, we've got plans, so we're hopeful. And now months later, um, yeah, HBO has officially announced that it has canceled Lovecraft Country, which is a pretty big bummer. Yeah, um, I mean... Like you said, not surprising only in the sense that there wasn't that instant, you know, second season coming mm -hmm. in 2022 or anything like that, which I found very strange. I, I, you know, I actually, I assumed it was coming back because I didn't hear anything. I thought, oh, maybe I missed the news. Maybe mm -hmm. it's one of those things that just kind of went under the radar. But I guess it's just we're in that time right now that they're they're just not wanting you know because hbo has done this many times with shows where it's like last a season or two and they just cancel it even though like the story might not be completed mm -hmm. uh cough cough carnival <laughs> still waiting for that to be finished please hbo <laughs> 20 years later before nick Stahl disappears again um <laughs> right. shit uh but but you know what i mean and, and it's weird because like right now with the lovecraft you know you know you know, buzz machine of like everything yeah. right now having some sort of influence or, you know, two, we were joking earlier, like this, the, maybe the two cinematic universes. We're not sure now because of, uh, especially the one, mm -hmm. is it going to continue? Is if it does, where's it going to go? But, you know, it, it's surprising yet not surprising, but I mean, it's sad because, you know, I wanted to see more. Mm hmm of this, you know, this world and, and then, you know, Misha Green putting up like the, 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 uh, basically one of the things from their yeah. show Bible, which mm -hmm. was the, uh, what was it? The United. What, welcome to the sovereign States of sovereign America. St oh yeah. my God. And it was so cool looking like, Oh God, that's like creepy. Yeah. I, I will, I will include this tweet that she sent out. That was kind of oh. a peek at what the season two show Bible looked like, but it was basically a map of the United States in this universe that was divided up into different parts. The uh, New Negro Republic, kind of down at, at states in the south and part of Texas, the Jefferson Commonwealth up in the northeast, uh, New England area, tribal nations of the west, which is, you know, basically m the entirety of the Midwest and west, and then the white lands in the middle, 
yeah. uh, kind of this middle strip. But um, she, you know, she wrote Lovecraft Country Supremacy, hashtag no Confederate. So like just this world where there was, you know, um, just a, a, a reimagining of the political, social and cultural lines in this alternate country. Um, yeah, I, and I would have I would have loved to see this. And she said uh, in this AV Club article that I linked to on the Facebook page, I envision a second season that carries on the spirit of Matt Ruff's novel by continuing to reclaim the genre storytelling space that people of color have typically been left out of. And that's the the huge bummer about this because yeah, I had I had my problems with the show. I talked about it a lot. You know, uh, I I loved the source novel. I loved a lot of stuff about the show, but I had problems with what, with what it some of the execution of, but also it was an important show too because. Right. The representation of the cast, the showrunners, and this idea of like, off the top of your head, if you sat to think like how many sci-fi genre properties that are for and created by people of color, how many can you think of? Like, there's not a lot out there. And so this is like a real missed opportunity. It is. And like, you know, you, you had like, to me, like, you know, and you also had this uh, an amazing cast that I just wanted to uh, yeah. see more oh, yeah. of. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, to re to enact these stories, especially now they'd be branching away from the source novel mm -hmm. and kind of making their own world. And that's kind of a bummer. That's, you know, and like, I mean, not that it's going to hurt any of the actors like Jonathan Majors now is, you know, Kang the, the Conqueror. Conqueror. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so far Loki has been crazy. So I'm wondering if, if he's going to make a little appearance in that, but <laughs> yep. that's a whole other thing, but yeah, it's a bummer, but you know, I, I just want to see what Misha Green will work on next. You know, bring bring that kind of storytelling that she was going to do in the second season, but bring it to something maybe, hell, maybe something original. Like, you know, like something like her own. Mm. Not not someone else's source material, but, yeah, you know. and And that's the thing. I, I had my, my quarrels with the show, but also I would have been very curious and would have eagerly jumped into a second season because it would have been that idea of we are now free from the source material, but we've set up this world. Yeah. Let's explore it more. And it would, it would have been her ideas and, and her journey and path. And, and that I would have really liked to have seen. Um, and now we won't, unfortunately. And, you know, I know we live in this age where there's all sorts of streaming services. There's Netflix, there's Amazon, there's Hulu, there's Paramount Plus. And one of the bigger or the biggest bummers about this is that it's a production of Warner Brothers Television. And so it's owned by Warner Media. So what are the odds that they're going to let one of their properties go to another streaming service is is, is, is not at all pretty unlikely. And that's that's the oh. really unfortunate part is that not only is it done, but this is probably all we'll get from it. Assuming Matt Ruff or someone doesn't choose to revisit it in some other form, novelization, whatever, but this is kind of all we got. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing that's kind of surprising though, because you know, it's a show that got good to great buzz mm -hmm. throughout, you know, like you said, I had my, my problems too, but like, this is a time, like you said, with all these streaming networks, um, it's surprising that they don't want, like something like this, like, you know, HBO Max, especially now getting bigger and getting bigger shows and bigger like movies. And it's like, you don't want something like, like, like a, a Lovecraft country on your streaming service. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's like, you're already showing, Oh, cause, cause usually HBO, like, like if you, if you've looked on HBO Max themselves, like a lot of times they have a lot of, um, you know, non, 
like basically they, like recently they put up a lot of um um like kind of genre shows from like you know Spain and like other you know and some like Latin you know like Latino countries like I'm like like Latin American like I there's one that the one that I want to check out called Los Espookies oh yeah yeah <laughs> that got really good buzz they just they just put that series up on HBO Max so it's like you don't want more you know like diversity like in your streaming service mm-hmm. it's kind of weird to me like it to me it's kind of a mistake but maybe you know a lot of times it wasn't the cost of the series that could be a part of it you know especially you know special effects driven genre series tend to either cost a lot or after a while they look like crap you know well and, and it's also considering that what was it uh at&t that took over um yeah you know and and, yeah. and and the mandate from the dude that runs AT&T was basically we're not going to, you know, put, you know, we're we're, we're not going to put a whole bunch of like our, our our apples into just a few baskets. We want to spread it out and create a lot of content so that hopefully right. something catches on and, and becomes viral. And, you know, that mandate got a lot of criticism from people because the mandate now seemed to be like, let's make content instead of let's make the next Sopranos or the next Game of Thrones or whatever. But you had the show now, which was... You know, I don't want to say it was viral, but it it generated a lot of buzz. It got a lot of viewership. It attracted a lot of awards attention. And yet it's like, no, we're not going to we're not going to continue on with this one. It's like, hmm, one of the more popular ones, which is um, largely done by a a non-white cast and crew. And this is the one that you're choosing. And now I don't want to, you know, conspiracy theorize and be like, no, "Hmm." but it also is like, do you not realize what you are taking away? And, you know, it's it's just it's, it's it's shitty, I think. Right, like, and, like, you know, my whole thing is what's going to replace it? You know what I mean? Like, is it going to be something of note, or is it going to be just another, you know, shitty, like, I don't know. Not that HBO makes shitty shows, but, you know, is it going to be something, like, very milk toast? I don't know. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, they, they have been, as a lot of streaming services have been doing, is, is getting a lot of... Um, buzz and engagement from like their documentary series that they've been putting mm-hmm. out so maybe and like those are cheaper to make so maybe there's yeah. there's more of that now don't get me wrong i am we are very much looking forward to the uh you know ronan farrow's catch and kill documentary series which is coming out that was a fantastic book and so i you know anything that i can engage with more in that realm but also yeah why why is this the you know why is this the limb that you cut it seems it seems not smart in my estimation agreed but that's that. Um, you can, uh, you, you know, you can certainly read uh, the articles that we have posted uh, on the Facebook page and also in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, and you know, Variety speculates that it's maybe like because they ran out of material, but also, you know, that that, right. <laughs> that didn't stop Game of Thrones. Now, of course, <laughs> the latter seasons of Game of Thrones were objectively bad, but also, um, I'm going to say that Misha Green probably is a a better and more visionistic um, showrunner than either uh dan weiss or uh david benioff but that's just uh you know yeah that is that is the unfortunate news for the day the other unfortunate news that we have for the day is uh we're reviewing the unnameable which uh <laughs> james james liked a bit more than me um but uh i gotta say it's it's kind of refreshing this is the first direct adaptation i think that we've done really since december when we did uh the whisper in darkness and the call of cthulhu we, we've kind of been doing the spiritual adaptations since then because right. uh there's there's just only so much material out there in actual adaptation so it was a it was good to getting back to reading the eldritch eldritch texts and seeing um 
what interesting ideas some people have for um for adapting them. Of course. But you know. uh, so rolling up my sleeves and doing what I haven't done in a few months is giving you a little bit of background on the story itself first before we get into the film. The Unnameable was written in September 1923 and published in Weird Tales in July of 1925. Uh, he wrote it in between The Rats in the Walls and The Festival, and both of which are very good stories. The Rats in the Walls obviously problematic because of the name of the cat, and mm -hmm. the less said about that, the better. Um, but, you know, kind of sandwich in between those two, this one seems kind of like, yeah, the, the overlooked, or not even overlooked, uh, yeah, why would you pay attention to this one when it comes in between those two? Um... The story's locale was inspired by the Charter Street Historic District Burying Ground in Salem, which is known for many historical landmarks, including the Pickman House, which is the oldest continually operated museum in America, the Grimshaw House, where Nathaniel Hawthorne courted his wife because his, uh, his father-in-law lived there, um, and the Charter Street Cemetery, which is, has been used as a burying ground since 1637 and includes, amongst others, Richard Moore, the only passenger of the Mayflower with a documented gravesite. So a lot of history and oldness in that one. Um, yeah. The story itself, um, pretty short. Uh, you know, I read it online, and so obviously the, the text was condensed, but only like two pages online, so it's a pretty short story. Um, Peter Cannon called it stagey and static, um, everyone's favorite Lovecraft biographer and academic. S.T. Josie called it a very slight tale. And yet, um, not everyone seems to be on board with that. Um, a, uh, a writer named Massimo Baruti says, He sees Lovecraft connecting thoughts on the limits of language with ideas on writing, supernatural fiction in the story. Lovecraft's use of such words as unnameable, unmentionable, unnamed, and nameless reflect his concerns with the parameters within which language works and thus the limits of rationality. And James Neal sees the story as exemplifying Lovecraft, Lovecraft's fiction as it explores the paradox of representing entities, things, and places that are beyond representation. The unnameable specifically attempts to resolve the problem of naming and knowing what is outside of normal experience. Uh, Massimo's um, paper I can certainly link to in the show notes. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I'm not an academic. Respectfully disagree with both, <laughs> both of those analyses. Um, I think it's a short story that is just, uh, you know, seems like it was done kind of quickly because the guy needed to get some uh, get some paid work. But right. I don't know. Um it's also weird because, presumably, this is the same Randolph Carter in this story as the guy from the statement of Randolph Carter, who, you know, uh, accompanied his friend to a graveyard um, as his friend descended into a grave or mausoleum, only to hear some type of horrible supernatural voice tell him that his friend was dead. So, oh, a supernatural experience, and yet the character in this story weirdly doesn't seem to believe in the supernatural... I it's weird, like, does he not? Or, because he's the one telling the story. Like, I know, it's very, it's a very weird character. Yeah, it's because he's telling the story, but then it also, the story kind of makes it, goes to deliberate efforts to show you that the friend who is hearing the story is the one who is kind of spooked and buying into the whole thing. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, is, is this just a guy who has had this knowledge and is trying to share it? Or, I don't, I don't know, but it's, the movie... <laughs> The movie, the reception of the movie is also weirdly mixed. TV Guide gave it two out of four stars. Um, there's a book, Lurker in the Lobby, a guide to the cinema of H.P. Lovecraft, in which Andrew Migliori and John Streisick write, The Unnameable is not a great film, but in low-budget Holmes Watson team of Randolph Carter and Howard Damon make for fun viewing. Well, let's restrain direction, Stevenson's performance as Randolph, and Catherine Alexander's elegant portrayal of the creature help lift the film out of the muck of dead teen flicks from the 1980s, 
and onto the shelf of Lovecraftian cinema. Once again, I respectfully disagree with basically everything they say. Yeah, that's a little. I mean, and I and I like the film, or at least I enjoyed it. I I'm still that's a little like little little bit of a high praise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think it speaks to. Once again, I think it speaks more to uh, how much yeah. content is out there and how much of it is objectively terrible and how little of it is actually quite good. And then we have this large middle ground where it's like, ugh, we gotta we gotta take what we can get because there's only so much out there. But restrained direction, is it restrained or was this movie just severely hampered by what is clearly a very low budget? Um I don't know. Uh, Anchor Bay right. released. Um, uh, there is an Anchor Bay release of the film and its sequel, which is currently out of print. But Unearthed Films announced that both of them, uh, the Unnameable and the Unnameable Two, the statement of Randolph Carter, will be released on Blu-ray for the first time. Now you may See, be that, as, asking that, yourself, that, yeah, if, if you're doing the Unnameable, why aren't you doing the Unnameable Two? Well, because as of this moment, right, it is not available uh, on Blu-ray and it is also not streaming anywhere. So we. Uh, we will get to that at some point in the future, I'm sure. And I'm sure that whenever um, Unearthed Films does release it, James will snatch it up in a heartbeat. Well, yeah, I already have the Unearthed Films, <laughs> you know, Blu-ray of, of this one. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, like, look, I'm happy when any boutique label takes a film like this, mm. tries to clean it up the best they can, you know, and give a lot of special features, mm. too. I appreciate that because... You don't see the big companies doing that for even new movies. Right. Like, they just put them out. Ah, you're lucky if you get a fucking trailer. <laughs> like, sometimes you don't even get that. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get, like, 17 trailers for every other film that's coming out. Mm. But not the trailer for the actual film. And you can't skip those either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted about that, that sequel, though, because we were saying about that cast, too. It's like, wait, this one was the, you know... I think it costs only three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it shows. Oh sure, it shows. We'll talk about that. But <laughs> I have to say, it's weird. It's one of those weird movies where it, yeah, the the budgetary restraints. Yeah, you, yeah, you see it. But then when it comes to the actual like the monster effects, when you finally see this unnameable creature, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really good. Yeah. So it's like they saved all that budget for that and some of the gore effects. Yeah. And nothing else. Yeah, and, and and maybe this had some type of um cult following. Maybe it was it was successful overseas when it came. Yeah, because they made a sequel and that, that sequel right. a attracted John Rhys Davies, David Warner, which are, are by no means A listers, but also like but are, are talented, you know, actors. Um and so yeah, they they're, they're talented they're talented, but they also will cash a check. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They're, you know, because John Reese Davies is in like I think two of the later Anaconda films. <laughs> he'll do he'll do anything for a buck, and that's why I love him mm. because he still gives that gravitas. Same thing with David Warner. Yeah, they yep. give that gravitas. But you know, David Warner was also in the Ice Cream Man with Clint Howard. Um. It just tells you like <laughs> like they'll <laughs> they'll do anything, but then like when they do something like really like big, mm. like oh. There, you know, there, there, there's John Reese Davies. There's, there's David Warner. But then, the twenty films in between, you know, usually they were doing a film maybe with like Eric Roberts or, well, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, or Bruce Willis is sleepwalking through one of the films, <laughs> and it and it makes you enjoy like, oh, there's David Warner. Okay, at least at least that part will be good. Wonderful. But that's that's a that's besides the point. You mentioned the 
low budgetness of this film. And yes, it was the film was written in seven days and shot in three weeks. And man, does it feel like it. Um, I mean, I, I got a, I got such a kick out of just the clearly flimsy tombstones that like they they don't look weathered. They look perfectly carved and very thin. And there's even a shot at the end when they're trying to pull Randolph like out of the grave or he's coming out of the grave and they just knock one over kind of like with minimal effort. Um, there's a there's a, a scene when Howard is trying to break down a door and the entire wall in the house is shaking when he's doing it like it's. It's very low budget, but I, I guess I also have to give it some effort because, like, it's 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 also very earnest. They Everyone is trying, it seems like, to make something serious. And I guess I kind of got to give it credit for that because it's low budget, but it's also not it's not cheesy, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense because and it makes sense to me because, yeah, I I, I always appreciate when even if it's a bad film or, you know, not a great film, but these, you know, you had a whole cast and crew make this, you mm-hmm. know, they, you know, mostly, most of the films we've seen, even when they've been bad, it's like, well, you know, at least there's something to it. Or like the creature effect is good. The gore is okay. The, the music's good. The acting, maybe like one actor in particular, like, Oh, that guy was really good. Mm-hmm. You know? And like, this film is like, kind of like, I call them like, you know, Sunday afternoon films where, (laughs) you know, you watch it on your couch, you watch it and like, okay, that was fun. That was stupid. That was whatever it was. And, you know, a little bit, you know, you get a little bit out of it, but then like, it's very, very like forgettable, but not, not in the, like a a way like, oh, this is terrible, but like more like, okay, I, I, I probably won't watch that again. Yeah. The, to me, the film works like is because I I actually liked the the Holmes and Watson of this, you know, Randolph and Howard. I kind of <laughs> like their weird dynamic because okay, right. it well could because okay, and I'll I'll give you why. It feels like, and I know it wasn't made to be like this, but it feels like a pilot episode of a TV series that would have these two like because it's when it's them. Up until the end, like when they're in the um, the house itself, mm-hmm. it feels like a different movie. It, it absolutely does. The music stingers are fucking weird <laughs> because it's like, like especially the one, like okay, for what and this is, and this is the scene that made me go kind of laugh. Go, huh? That's what it feels like to me is when Howard is running. You know, like Randolph is walking around with the book. He's you know reading in in the halls of the school or outside wherever it was and. Yeah, it was in the halls, and all of a sudden you see, like, something running at him. You're like, oh, could it be the creature? Which would make no sense, but is it the creature? And then it's Howard. Uh, oh, what's going on? Like, oh, he never, you know, talk about their friend, their colleague that never went home, like, mm. the parents. Like, he must, he's got to be there, like, still. And then all of a sudden he's just like, you know, Randolph's like, well, we, let's go to my, you know, my my room, my dorm room first to get some lanterns. Right. And he actually had a lantern. He did. It wasn't a fucking flashlight. <laughs> so like, he, and and again, the Randolph Carter character is bizarre. He's a bizarre like the actor is like kind of weird looking, kind mm-hmm. of like you said, very. He must be like the stand-in for Lovecraft. Yeah, and and yeah, the, the Randolph Carter character is 
unusual. And the one aspect of him that I do kind of appreciate is he doesn't seem to have earthly concerns. Like, at least, you know, um, even once <laughs> yeah. they get inside the house, there's like, where is our friend Joel? We think he's dead. We found this head. Everyone's right. terrified. And he's just like, oh, look at these, like, ancient texts. And he just dives into those things. And even even at the end, um, the fact that he clawed his way out of a grave just kind of seems to be par for the course for him. Like, his his mind is clearly on the other, on what is outside of this physical reality, which is set up in both the story and in that first conversation when he's, mm-hmm. you know, this apparently prolific published college student um is is talking about you know this this story and his family's history and how you can't you know you can't just judge your experience based on empirical evidence and and uh, tangible reality which is is very much the the exchange between these two very much feels like an undergraduate screenplay of like how everything is so on the nose but it does set up that dichotomy which is in the story um and yeah it just he seems like a guy that's like yeah of course he's not he's not really concerned with the affections of women he's more concerned with this weird other stuff who's <laughs> who's the 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 nerdy incel kid from friday 13 part 3 jody shelly jody jody the kid the kid who's kind of like always trying to make jokes at the inopportune time um and the film really wants us to feel sorry for him but he's kind of a nerd and a creep um, oh, the, the one with the fro? Yeah, yeah. Shelly, that's Shelly. Shelly, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Mark Kinsey Stevenson, I could see him as the Shelly type of character in yeah. genre movies. Like, the you know, the, the nerdy guy who's... He's like Screech, basically, kind of. Um, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Just not as an annoying voice, yeah. but yeah. Which, I, I mean, didn't work out for Dustin Diamond. You know, also, rest in peace, Dustin Diamond. Yeah, um, yeah. But, no, like, he... He has the the disposition and and kind of the look for a for character actor work, um, but also let's let's not assume that this film is more than it actually is because it's a low budget horror film um, that I, I don't know I, I have to disagree with um with Lurker in the Lobby uh, because they say that it separates itself from the pack of nineteen eighties teen teen films um, yeah I actually think that this adaptation has some of the worst elements of 18 horror films. Like, it doesn't separate itself from the pack. It includes all of them to its detriment. Like, one bad fashion, um, jocks who wear, like, their sweaters with the, the sleeves kind of tied oh. around their neck. Um, yes. You know, uh, the, you know these jocks who are trying to fuck women in opportune places, uh, gratuitous nudity, and borderline sexual assault, where it's like, yeah, let's just gloss over the fact that this guy was trying to have sex yeah. with Tanya and she kept saying like no and he's no. you know so it, it, and and it, and and just for, for the the I can't even say for the purpose of titillation cuz yes there is nudity and it seems like very clearly that's why they cast Laura Albert was they wanted that from her yeah. but yeah. also like it, it it feels like none of it feels organic to the people or the characters like when you first saw Wendy come on screen and watch her first exchange, did you say, like, you know, I bet you she's going to get naked with some random jock in this haunted house. Like, that doesn't seem what her her character was destined for, so it almost just kind of seems like there's a lot of stuff like, hey, it's the 80s, we need to include this, this, this. And, like, it it feels more like a checklist instead of, like, yeah, this is natural to these characters. No, I I agree. And, like, yeah, like you were saying about Laura Albert, like, I was wondering why she she looked familiar to me, Mm -hmm. and, um... 
I've seen her in a lot of like, you know, a lot of eighties and nineties films as an actress. It's you, you mentioned that I, I actually didn't realize she was such a prolific stunt performer. Holy shit. Like <laughs> yeah, she's, done, she's done everything. Yeah. She's wow. Like everything from even like the new Hawaii five O and Magnum PIs to the, the like, town. Big, you know, she, yeah. yeah. The town war dogs, even workaholics, which is really weird. She did four episodes. <laughs> but, I mean, that show is crazy. It gets crazy sometimes, but I mean, yeah, the Italian Job, Terminator Three, yeah, Pirates yeah, of the totally. Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, and and uh, a lot of stunts for the X Files. My favorite show. It seems yeah. like once the once the production transitioned to LA, that's when she hopped on because she was in anything from uh, Drive, which was the episode uh, that Brian Cranston debuted uh, on the mm. X Files, and to uh, the Truth, which is the very uh, the very last uh, episode of the series. And don't anyone say anything. There is no such thing as the X Files season. 10 and 11 i don't know what you're talking about um but yeah so it, it, it you know you know once she came on you know like okay she's she's the sex object she's going to be the object of desire but did i expect her to get naked with just some random guy that shows up no so it it, it just felt like you no know, an 80s horror movie that had to include a bunch of things that you'd expect from an 80 teens uh horror movie and i i i think to its it's detriment, but it, and, 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 and it speaks to, I think, the film, because really, once they get to the house, and they spend, like, the entire second half of the movie inside that house, so once again, yeah. Yeah. you see the budget, you see what they had to work with, so, like, we got this location, we built it, we just gotta stay here for ever, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, yeah, feels like it, and it, it's a shame, because, like you said, um, yeah, the makeup effects, actually pretty decent, done by, um, a guy oh, yes. named Art Christopher Biggs, who did a lot of makeup work and then eventually transitioned into visual effects work, but uh, a lot of makeup design on some notable films, Nightmare on Elm Street Parts 4 and 5, uh, Star Trek 6, and James's favorite movie, Super Mario Brothers. Hey, you know what? The Goombas, they, they're horrifying looking, so, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not a, not a good movie, but also, like, yeah, there was there there were some yeah. deliberate choices and, and effort put into those things. Right. Uh, um. So, yeah, they and they... and, and I know that the IMDb trivia says that it took like what nine hours, I think, to get the actress into that wow. unnameable makeup, and so they, you know, they they really yeah. wanted to display the things that they were putting all their money and effort into, and so I, I get it. It's just right. There's not a lot of substance to the screenplay, and I think that's because there's also there's not a lot of substance to the story either. Like it's mm-hmm. it's kind of one of Lovecraft's like minor lighter works that has a lot of his stuff about like. You know, sure, there's an unnameable thing, but there's also at the end of the story, it's like both people just sort of pass out when something happens and then they wake up in a hospital and, and sort of describe things after the fact. But, um, yeah, and, and I know you had said off mic that yeah. the, the Blu-ray actually looks pretty decent, which is surprising because the I don't want to say this film on Prime looks ugly, but <laughs> it's probably sourced from the original DVD yeah. release. You know what I mean? Yeah, like because I. I was going to, like, because I wasn't going to try to find the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll just put it on Prime. It's on Prime. And then I said, you know what? Let me just find the Blu-ray, put it on. And it did look better. Like, not, it look, don't get me wrong. It doesn't look great because it wasn't really taken care of. This is a very slight watch. You watch it once and you, it's kind of, it kind of goes away. It kind of, mm-hmm. like, already it's kind of going away from my head. Like, and I <laughs> just watched it like a day ago. It's like, wait, where is it going? I don't know. Um, 
And and that's the thing too. Like you, you had mentioned in the notes, and I kind of wanted to piggyback on this because we didn't mention it yet. But the intro. Oh yeah, the yeah the prologue. The prologue of what was it? The eighteen hundreds, like something like, like uh, maybe even right? earlier, because Cotton right. Mather shows up or something. Yeah, it's very very odd. Like I thought the Mayflower actually was gonna be coming showing up in the background. <laughs> um, and I actually, weird enough, I got worried because I'm like, oh, is this a uh, a period piece. Oh um, yeah, you know. And I said, okay, well, if it is, I guess that'll be fine. But then, like, because you know, because the thing with low budget films, you know, acting aside, but when it's like people having to do old timey acting, <laughs> like the like, old timey like accents, like hither to, and it's like, no, don't, don't, don't do the Ren Fair <laughs> shit, please. Yep. Like, yep. Mm-hmm. um, and like, uh, like, you know, like, look. This unnameable creature. We don't know what or who it is, except the kind. It kind of tells you, like this story of you know Randolph is telling, but it actually did happen. Yeah, this is a legit story. But the, that guy in the beginning that looked looked like friggin' um from a Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I was waiting for. I, I thought he was gonna find the three ghosts. Yeah, your your you cut know? rate. Your cut rate, Patrick Stewart. Right. Oh God. Yeah. Um. Is he one of the stupidest fucking characters ever? <laughs> because, okay, because I'm watching it, okay, and I'm like, okay, this unnameable thing is like, bang, with the weird, weird, like, first person thing, like, banging against this door, which I appreciate. Okay, they're trying to show, without showing the creature, but showing it like, oh, this thing's angry. Okay, this guy goes around with his candle, goes up there, but no, you know, he lives there. Yes. And I guess he's related to this thing. Yes, he, yes. Right, right, way. you know like a father or whatever, whatever he is. And he knows it's a creature. You know, you know he knows what it is. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's finding this thing for the first time. And he, he knows it's angry, too. I'll un- I'll unlock it out. Hey, come on out. Oh, my heart's been ripped out. I'm dead. <laughs> like, you're an idiot. Like, you deserve to die. And, like- <laughs> and, and, and not just that, because once again, like, th- that that element yeah. of at least the past that's in the story too but the way that the short story itself is set up is it's two guys having a conversation in front of this mm-hmm. house and this and you know carter kind of tells you like hey this is the story that i've heard that's been handed down right. from me so listen if you're a lovecraft fan you know what to expect but at least on the surface if someone's reading that story in 1925 it's like oh these two guys are talking this is just a story, right? Well, no, because eventually the unnameable thing escapes and attacks these two. So there's a, there's kind of an element in the short story of, is this a story or is this real? Is this something that happened that has been lost through time? Or is this just some guy who's a published author of fiction and is bullshitting me? And by setting up the prologue in this movie, not only is he, yeah, once again, like, oh, let's pretend that this is old-timey America... Yes. It also is like, yes, this is a real thing. And so you're just waiting for these teams to show up and get killed, which once again harkens back to this having some of the worst traits of 80s right. uh, teen horror films, where it's like there is no tension, there is no question, it's just a matter of, yep, let's wait until these teens show up and just get killed one at a time at a time. And, and it kind of loses any source of uh, of not tension, but mystery, suspense, whatever. You're just waiting for these victims to get churned out. Yeah, I think I think like that, and like that's why I wanted to bring it up because I think it does hurt the film because 
maybe if you just had him, you know, telling the story as opposed to showing this prologue and then cutting to him telling this, like, ending this story. Now you go, okay, there, the, the creature, okay, that's what its arm looks like. That's what its hand looks like. It kills, okay. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, wait a second. How long is this creature, like, this creature escapes, but then goes back to the same house 300 years later? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's a very weird, like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, like you're saying, like, and, like, the original source story, like, like have, you know, Randolph Carter telling the story, and then, like, there's so many, you know, like, I don't, you know, it's, it's of course, you know, you know, when you look at some, you, you can quarterback anything. You can set, you could be a director or an editor 30 years after a movie's made. You go, oh, this is how it could be better. But sometimes it's actually like, it's right there. You go, wait a second. You could have easily made it a better, even though it would still be like a very cliched 80s horror teen film, but you could have had this. You could have done. Cut that whole thing out from the beginning. Don't show this old-timey crap. Mm-hmm. Ha, you know, have Randolph Carter telling the story. And then the friend, you know, the one friend going, ah, it's bullshit. I'm going to go inside. Which it took him a long time to go into the house in the first place. It seemed like he, he went there like three hours later. Yeah. Right? But so you have that happen and you have him get killed. But you don't show the hand. You know what I mean? You see him getting killed. Mm-hmm. So now you're thinking, wait, is there a creature? Or is it someone else? Is it Randolph Carter being a psych? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's so many ways you could have played the film to make it like kind of more, like you said, mysterious. You have to, you know, tense. You'd be like, oh my God, what, what's going to happen? Who is it? And then because later on, it almost seemed like maybe they wanted to do that because you have um, Wendy freaking out at Howard thinking he's killing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? You know what I mean? So... It almost had when when I because that and that's the reason why I thought about that because I'm like that would have been a cool little like oh may, uh, maybe what if it was Howard the nice guy but then like no there is a creature and okay whatever it's a creature movie it's a monster movie from the 80s but you could have had this build up to the creature as opposed to like you know you have like the hand in the beginning then you see him or her killing the friend <laughs> and chopping his head off. Yeah. which is funny to me mm-hmm. um and then you know you, you and then you show it real briefly like a little bit later on like with the strobe effects which like i don't know like with creature movies like i like it when they wait till like almost the end or maybe like like a half hour before the end of the movie to show like oh that's what the creature this one like kind of shows a little too much throughout and then you see the full creature of course the last like five to ten minutes I don't know. It's, you know. Well, and and the you know as as effective of a design as it is, the design itself is like there's nothing really unique about it. Like it, it kind of has right. the traits of sort right. of like what you would think of as a demonic presence. It's got like the cloven hooves for feet and horns and teeth. And now mm-hmm. the the way that it's described in the story, obviously you can't do that because you have well, yeah, you have a. a Mark, uh, Manton, Joel Manton, who's the, the, you know, the, the, the one in the story says, no, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere, a gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes, right. a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memories. There were eyes and a blemish. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination. Now that's very vague and you can't put that on film, but mm-hmm. then what they do put on film is just kind of, it, it it's, it's a kind of generic monster. And despite yeah. 
the title of this, despite having Lovecraft's name attached to it, despite all little sorts of nods and winks um, to it, including our one of our main characters is named Randolph Carter. You have another guy who's named Howard. Get right. it? Howard. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. Necronomicon and all sorts of stuff. Miskatonic like, U. Yeah. You know. It's it's also Miskatonic U, which seemed like it was shot in high school because there were all those lockers in the hallway. But that's besides <laughs> the point. Yeah, uh, you're right. Um, it it it. it it has the labels of a Lovecraft story, but it doesn't have the spirit of a Lovecraft story. Instead, just kind of... It, it, it focuses on weird things to convince you of its Lovecraftiness, especially, yeah, there is an element in the story of that that idea of an image being trapped in glass of someone mm. that's, you know, been longing out the window for too long. Right. But yeah. this movie keeps going back to that and, like... No, that's what it is. No, that's what it is. No, that's what it is. And so it's like, see, we've read the story, guys. We know what we're doing here. Um, and then even, and this is such a petty little nitpicky thing, but once uh, Randolph gets the Necronomicon, he's reading it in a different language, and you can recognize the words yes. Cthulhu, Relia, uh, Photogen. Those words, yes, they do appear in Lovecraft short stories. What they translate to, in his house at Relia, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming which literally has nothing to do with this story, with this world, no. which anything. It, instead, it's just, once again, like, see, guys, we know Lovecraft because we're going to throw a whole bunch of shit in here. But instead, it really is just kind of a generic 80s uh, monster movie um, that wants to convince you that it's 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 Lovecraftian. Yeah, like, the the nods are, you know, we, you, know you and I, like, not that we appreciate it, but we go, okay, there they are. <laughs> right. But but what is it for? Like is 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 it to advance the story? Not at all. Like, yeah, it's like it it almost feels like I don't I don't know if this is going a little too deep with it, but it feels like the later Hellraiser sequels where they were not Hellraiser sequels beforehand, and then they got you know whoever you know like uh, the producers went hey um the script's all right okay this <laughs> this, this weird supernatural like detective story. It's pretty good. But you don't want to make it better? What? Pinhead? <laughs> yeah. Oh, 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 okay. Um, how do we write him in? I don't know. Just put him like throughout the story, but don't change anything else. Yeah. That's what this feels like. It's like it's a monster movie, and they went, you know what? But we can make it a little more heady with our budget. Let let's. And this is at a time when Lovecraft wasn't like super popular, so it almost makes it feel like, ooh. H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable. Like, it sounds like a better title than just The Unnameable. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, you look at that title, it looks it looks like cool. Like, oh, it's like anything like Edgar Allan Poe's in you know, The Murder in the Room More. You know, like, yeah, yeah. You, you give it the little, like, gravitas. But because it kind of just ends with them, like, again, it feels like the end of, like, like almost like almost like a sitcom. Or, like, you know, them walking away from the house. Like, like nothing happened. Yeah, they, they. Oh, what a what a night we had! Yeah, it, it ends it ends on a joke, and then them walking off into like the metaphorical sunset because it's the darkness. But it's just a long shot of them walking off into the darkness, right. and like you're gonna end on a quip after all that. I was waiting for them to do a freeze frame with a laugh, you know, and like and with the credits, like like it was like I said, this film is very bizarre, like bizarrely structured, like, and again we said like the last half is in this house. So it's it, it's just bizarre. Like it, it's hard to explain because it's not it's nothing really to it, but at the same time, 
I'm still confused by a lot of it. Like where I'm going, really? That's that's the choice they made. Yeah, it goes it goes through great pains to convince us that people are getting lost in this house, which doesn't seem that big to begin with. Um, But you know, they have this location that they built. They have to spend time in it, and they spend a lot of time with Howard and Tanya, as though we give a shit about the two of them and kind of falling for each other. And Howard is, right. is, is of course, an invention of the film, as are Wendy and Tanya. And I suppose between Randolph and Joel, who are two the two characters in the short story, Howard is supposed to be kind of our audience surrogate, almost as though it's, you know, John Myers mm-hmm. in, in Hellboy or something. Um, right. But Howard is so milquetoast and bland... And instead of being an active participant, he just kind of is an observer to everything that's going on, including an observer between the 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 clashing between the two philosophies or, or the two threads of the story, the skeptic, the skepticism and the believer as evidenced in or embodied in both Joel and Randolph. So he's just kind of a passive participant. And like, I don't care if he and Tanya get together at the end, no. like I, I because I know nothing about either of them and also yeah it's it just it's a quote-unquote faithful adaptation but when there's not much to this source material to begin with the faithfulness of the adaptation is 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 irrelevant i mean you know from yeah. beyond was a was a faithful adaptation in the sense of they included a lot of elements of the four pages of that story but you know yeah. they they built upon the themes and the characters and everything circled back to what the core of the story was and in this one the core of the story is kind of thin and so circling back to it is like okay so now you have a pretty thin movie too now you're yeah and and that's the thing and like it was funny we were talking about the creature and like how it just looks like a lot like even um Corinne saw the creature and said oh that kind of looks like a gargoyle yeah mm-hmm. i said yeah you're right i'm like and she's like, yeah, it's not really that unnameable, is it? I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> and yeah. we're just like laughing because it's like, yeah, you're right. It's like, it's and again, I don't, I don't hold that against them. You know, you got to think, okay, how do you make this creature? Yeah, you don't like, like you know, look at like any, any like you know, even bigger budget, um, Lovecraft or Lovecraftian film, like, you know, like in and even in Hellboy and stuff like that, you see Cthulhu esque. This, this thing but it's like looks like what cthulhu we think looks like yeah because we've seen it drawn and and so many things and but like sometimes like you know i wonder sometimes like you know they feel like they have to showcase something they have to show you it because if they don't it's like oh you took the easy way out you just you just didn't have money in the budget to show what it looks like so you didn't have a special effect for it but it's like I, I don't know. Sometimes with like Lovecraft creatures, like less is more. Or again, if you if they can come up with something that's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And and we've seen drawings and stuff. So let you know, I, I, I think I think filmmakers need to um employ some some like, you know, visual artists that can go out there that mm. have like this mindset to go I'm not even making this to look like anything that exists on Earth. Because mm-hmm. that's the problem. If it looks like it exists on Earth, yes, it could still be scary, but is it Lovecraft scary? Yeah. It, you know what it, I mean? Is, 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 is it going to make you... Is it going to drive you mad from looking at it? No, of course not. But if I look at something and go, what the fuck is that? 
then you've impressed me. You know what I mean? Like, it's not some, like, like you said, like, oh, it has cloven hooves and like, okay. So it looks like something that is weird and bizarre, but it also looks like something from, as, as we see um, Randolph reading folklore books throughout this movie. Folklore. And I, and I wonder, or I'm not even wonder, but I'm reminded of also the 1970 or 71 adaptation of Dunwich Horror with with uh, uh, Dean Stockwell and how the monster in that one was an invisible thing. So mm-hmm. what did they do? Well, they didn't show you anything. They just showed you the monster's POV. And was right. was that satisfying? Maybe not. Yeah. But they were no. also working within the scope of the story and the scope of their own budget. And now... I suppose if you take this monster out of the movie, then what really do you have? You basically right. have nothing. But that's true too. Yeah. But uh, you know, so it, it's a it's you know caught between a rock and a hard place because yeah, you don't have an unable thing. You have like oh, it's kind of like a demon goat thing, yeah. um, which we're <laughs> yeah. we haven't even touched yet on how um, what saves the day are tree spirits. Yeah. Yeah. That, okay. <laughs> so yeah. So Randolph is reading from the Necronomicon. Yep. Oh, you know, this his text, ancient text, and yeah, tree trees come and pull the beast away. And I don't know. I was very very confused. I'm like, wait, am I watching am I, am I watching Evil Dead now? <laughs> yeah, it's like, like what's going on here? <laughs> not only is that nowhere in the source material, which once again, that's fine if you want to add something to it, but also it's really nowhere else in the movie until at the end. Yeah. Howard is sitting, or near the end, Howard is sitting reading the Necronomicon, like, tree spirits. Like, how how is that organic or natural to where this story was going that, you know, how we get out of this trees? That that makes a lot of sense. As See, no, I, I'm going to say why it makes sense. Not because the movie makes sense, but because, <laughs> um, on, you know, this is 1988, so it was probably made in 1987. Mm-hmm. You had both Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Mm. Which has the Necronomicon. Okay. And what happens? Trees. I really think that's why they took it. Like, I really think they went, oh, maybe they'll think it's, like, tied into that, too. Right. The Necronomicon. You know, that's... Right, right, right. You know, and it feels like that. Like, it's weird. Like, makes no sense. It's not even they even mentioned anything about trees earlier in the movie. It's not like they said, no. oh, man, you know, the tree spirits, you know, <laughs> or whatever the freaking hell it's supposed to be. I'm like, <laughs> really? Like, oh, they're working for good now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, funniest thing, though, like how you said, like how Howard's very milk toast, and you're right. Um, I think that's why I like the character of Randolph better, more yeah. because he's just so bizarre. Yep. And what I love is when Howard and Tanya, you know, you think they've made it, and then all of a sudden the ground opens up, and he's getting pulled down by a skeleton hand, which I guess is supposed to be the creature. I, I, uh, and, and it's there's only one. There's not multiple skeletons trying to pull no, him down. It is a single skeleton arm. And then what I love is then you see Randolph, and it almost feels like Randolph is trying to pull him in. <laughs> it does. And then and then finally he like gets out. But I I would have laughed so much if like Randolph just like grabbed him and just like pulled him in and got out. <laughs> like, hey, Tanya, want to go out? <laughs> <laughs> that would have made the film hysterical. Like, okay, you you won me over, you know. Mm-hmm. But but again. You know, whenever we watch the sequel, we'll we'll see more of uh, Randolph Carter's uh, yeah, you know, escapades. I suppose, and yeah, you're you're right because I mean, even thinking back to Reanimator, Dan Kane was significantly less interesting than Herbert West was. Yes. So you know, yeah, yeah. but but it's, one... it's weird, right? Isn't that bizarre? Like they do that a lot. They have the surrogate 
it ultimately to me hurts to, like hurt, not and then again in reanimator at least dan you know at least he was like i i actually had sympathy for the character but he was milk toast well, yeah was. but we but we understood where he right. was coming from and what was at stake with him especially because of his relationship with i'm forgetting the, the character's name barbara crampton basically right yeah exactly no and yeah so i mean somehow we've we've we found a way to talk about this film much more than probably it deserves, but <laughs> but that's what we tend to do with a lot a lot of these uh, lesser adaptations. But again, like you said, is this a film that I would say, oh, if you're you know if you want to see a really like like not even a good but like a love Lovecraft adaptation, I really can't say it is. Like I have to say, a lot of the Lovecraftian stuff we watched the last few months are more Lovecraftian than yeah, this significantly yeah and and that's that's i think the biggest crime about this film is that if someone yeah. was unfamiliar with it and just sat down to watch the unnameable they'd be like oh so lovecraft just kind of wrote like monsters stories or like haunted house stories like no he he was yeah it was so much more than that but that's that's really all that this one is because it doesn't have the imagination or the execution to really kind of go beyond its scope and that's that's a well you know it's it's not it's not bad, it's but it's just kind of boring and, and uninspired. Um I think that's a good place to end our discussion on the unnameable. Um you can certainly uh you know once again get in contact with us always at moviesofmadness at gmail.com. Uh follow us on Twitter at Cast Cthulhu and on Facebook at Cthulhu Cast. I individually am Nolan Fixes Teeth, James is Fistful of Media. You can catch up on our back episodes pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, including on BattleshipRetention.com. Um, and yeah, this is this has been the Unnamable. Next uh, next time, as yes. we have laid out, we are going to be watching The Resurrected, a film I have not seen, but uh, based on the case of Charles Dexter Ward. James, what can we expect from The Resurrected, directed by Dan O'Bannon and starring Chris Sarandon as the titular Charles Dexter Ward? Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, mm -hmm. but... Um, I just remember Chris Randon looking, you know, handsome in it of course. and, you know, and I, I remember some, cre you know, creature effects. That's, that's all I remember, which is actually exciting because it could be, maybe, it, maybe it's a, you know, hidden gem yep. or maybe it's something along the lines of the unnameable. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Like, I mean, it got a screen factor release, so, okay. um, you know, so it's, it's a little more. High profile, I guess you could say. But that might also be because of the Dan O'Bannon connection, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, but and I'm, ex I'm excited to talk about it, you know? And uh, speaking of the Dan O'Bannon connection, I know that this episode won't go up for another few days, but at least as of the recording of this episode, um, it is the day when the events of Return of a Living Dead oh, yes. take place. Yeah, yeah, July 3rd, yes. Yeah, actually, usually that's when I watch one, one of the only, not only time, but Usually, like, I try to watch at least a little bit of Return of the Living Dead mm -hmm. um, on July 3rd. Great film. Still, still top, top 10 for me, especially. Yeah, it's it, a, it's such a great film. If you've never seen Return of the Living Dead, just take the time out and watch it. It's It's been a long time, and I'm a little bit worried that if I revisit it, it won't be as effective as um, I remember it being. Although that was one of my earliest memories of the bleakness of horror films because i can mm -hmm. remember watching that on a sunday afternoon with my brother and we were 
not placing bets. We were like, who do you think is going to survive until the end? And I was like, I think it's going to be, you know, the, yeah. uh, I think it's going to be this guy. And my brother's like, I think it's going to be this guy. And then at the end, uh, no oh. one survives because they nuke the entire fucking town. But <laughs> then they made a sequel and yeah. brought back some of the characters. So, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what? what? <laughs> but yeah, no, I, and again, as you know, I like dark endings. You do? And that has a great dark ending where you go, oh, the fucking government. <laughs> basically yep. damn mm. you government also my earliest exposure to uh clue Gulliger, who i would not know would mm. be relevant until years later when i would watch uh project Greenlight, and his son uh yes. ended up directing all three feast, feast movies yeah yes um but yeah that that's that's a somehow we managed to, to get a tangent even at the end of our episode but yeah um <laughs> next episode is going to be the resurrected directed by dan o'bannon but in the meantime We'll be waiting and dreaming with dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 